0: Thank you all for coming in to be with me this morning. Let's take a quick look at what's in the front pages of the Sunday Papers. Starting with the Sunday Business Post. A new influx of fraud fraudsters deepens our insurance crisis is the lead story there. Fraudsters are flocking to Ireland to take advantage of the country's abnormally high personal injury awards as the insurance crisis engulfing business, voluntary organisations and consumers continues to deepen. Aviva Ireland, one of the country's largest insurers, has dealt with 50 cases of suspected insurance fraud committed by people travelling from Britain in the last three years alone. Uh, on that topic, it is worth hunting down a video. Um, obviously, please don't do it now because you should be listening to me for the next two hours but when you do have time hunt down a video that's doing the rounds on Twitter this morning uh, Pierce Doherty questioning the CEOs of three major insurance firms at the Arcus Committee on Finance earlier in this week uh, the number of cases that they claim are fraudulent versus the number of cases that they actually report to the guards for being fraudulent uh, suffice to say there is quite a difference between the two figures uh, also on the front page of the Sunday Business Post this morning government faces legal challenge after axing climate bill People Before Profit TD Breed Smith is seeking a judicial review of the government's decision to block her Climate Emergency Measures Bill the Sunday Business Post has learned Smith said this weekend that she was currently taking legal advice and that she believed that there were substantial grounds for the challenge it's unclear how it would be funded but Smith said she was in discussions with a number of NGOs she's considering taking a judicial review connected to the Climate Emergency Bill Uh, the review could be based on a number of grounds such as the process that reversed the original decision that her bill did not need a money message this of course is uh, the procedural term with the government. Uh, has to sanction any bill that would result in a loss of money to the taxpayer and um, that is the the machinery by which the government has blocked this particular bill. Uh, Front page of the Sunday Times meanwhile, INM data hack ran for longer than reported. Justine McCarthy has this story. She is, of course, a former journalist at the Independent Newspaper Stable. So INM has told current and former staff journalists, um, executives and advisors whose data was allegedly accessed without their knowledge that a hacking operation in the group may have continued for longer than previously thought. INM also said that certain key individuals had refused to engage with its investigation, which had found that the purpose of the data hack was not a cost reduction exercise, contrary to what the company's board had previously been told. A letter issued by the company last week to the so-called INM 19, whose records were targeted said that the board had received an investigation report uh, commission from Deloitte uh, Deloitte appears to have uh, concluded that there were uh, update reports completed on the progress of the data interrogation at the time that it was carried out however Deloitte has not been able to obtain copies of those reports also on the front page of the Sunday Times this morning concerns grow for Cowan after bleed to his brain Brian Cowan the former Taoiseach was in a serious condition at St Vincent's Hospital in Dublin last night after being transferred overnight on Friday from the city's Beacon Hospital news of the former Fianna Fáil leader's illness involving a bleed in the brain has shocked many of his colleagues uh, a source close to the, the family said that he, he is comfortable and he is hanging on in there and it's a great shock to the family they are coming to terms with that uh, we wait and see what emerges and we live in hope um, the front page of the Sunday Independent meanwhile Garda corruption family's fears on unsolved murders the guarded division at the centre of an inquiry into alleged corruption in the forest, is coming under pressure from families who want the investigations into the unsolved murders and disappearances of loved ones to be reviewed. A superintendent, an inspector and a detective guard were arrested in May and a fourth suspect, a civilian sports figure, suspected of acting as a go-between, was arrested on Thursday. All have been released without charge. The fallout of the corruption inquiry has generated unease among several families who now question whether more could have been done to pursue the deaths and disappearances of their loved ones. And also on the front page of The Sunday Independent, fury at, quote, disgusting online abuse of ill Brian Cowan. Philip Ryan has this story he says Fianna Fáil TDs have criticised vile online comments about the former Taoiseach who's been treated in hospital for a serious illness he fell ill on Thursday and remains in hospital comments by some individuals on social media platforms were yesterday branded as disgusting and nasty by some Fianna Fáil TDs we'll come back to that in in a few minutes time front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday victims of abuse slam Varadkar's cD jibe that is a story uh, about by Anne Sheridan John Lee and John Drennan about the fallout from Leo Varadkar's sinful priest remark earlier in the week it has been criticised by some victims of clerical sexual abuse um, the front page of the Irish Sun on Sunday is a particularly good one uh, Adam Higgins has done an FOI request into spending on the official credit card of Garda Commissioner Drew Harris he reveals spending in Hugo Boss in Butler's Chocolates a 411 euro dinner at one of Dublin's top restaurants and 8 euro spent in Supermax at the Barack Obama Plaza so truly he is a man of the people representative of the communities that he is serving so that's just a taste of what's on some of the front pages of the Sunday papers before we get into all of that um, Larry, you must be dreadfully excited at the Women's World Cup final this afternoon.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm delighted. I'm, I'm hoping that the United States uh, can, can pull it off. I have to say I'm one of these old-fashioned Yanks who still doesn't quite get soccer. Uh, but I did watch some of the uh, the semi final, uh, mm. and it was gripping and absolutely delighted for the American women uh, and I'm really hopeful that they can pull it off.
0: It really does uh, add a n- little bit of extra needle when you have the whole uh, the row over the teacup celebration and whether that's supposed to be in some way insensitive. Did you think that that was a little bit beyond the mark or did you think it was... Is just fair game. One of those things that you I, do.
1: I thought it was a sports thing in the heat of the moment. I think if you're going to get offended like that by something like that, I think you're taking things too seriously. Look, they were jubilant. They had just scored uh, a goal. They were celebrating. Uh, I think that a lot of that was overwrought.
0: Yeah uh, Mick Gráinne have you had anything thoughts about the, the teacup celebration did you think it was a little bit beyond the pale
2: Ah no I thought, I thought it was going I have to say the first match I watched to be honest which was the semi-final and I was really taken aback at the level of skill and uh, the high quality of the football and it was actually far more entertaining than an awful lot of the uh, men's football so one thing I think is, is sometimes funny that people talk about women's sports and they, they laud them
0: growingly because they see them as being you know just the fundamentals that there's none of this seedy off the ball lack of sportsmanship but some of the times and it's been particularly the case in this World Cup that some of what makes it so fun and so compelling to watch is because there's that little bit of chicanery yeah, off the it's, ball Yeah it's,
3: it's the stories behind you know, the, the, the individual footballers mm. obviously the US captain Rapinoe has a load of, a load of that she's a, such a great star and mm. a, so enjoyable to watch because of that and there's that extra added um, wait to the final because of the comments she made that she's not going to the White House if they win and Trump said well win, yeah, first. win first Yeah. Um, so there's all this riding on it on top of the the tension that goes with this, uh, a final mm. so yeah it is very entertaining
0: And the classic subplots then of the fact that she wasn't uh, chosen in the starting team for the semi-final against England and was she dropped on basis of form or was she being rested, or was there some political machinery behind all of that it's fascinating stuff but that, that World Cup final uh, on later this afternoon we'll be talking about it a little bit more in the second hour of the show uh, in the meantime uh, some of the discussion about Brian Cowan that's on today's o- of Sunday Papers we don't want to talk too much about him because obviously um, he's in a pretty grave situation and obviously his family and wider circle of friends are still uh, very much hoping that he can pull through um, Mick Clifford what do you make about some of the reports this morning about some of the disgusting online abuse because a lot of people will think that while they of course wish no ill against Brian Cowan that they cannot divorce the person from the politics and what, what happened under his watch
2: Yeah no I couldn't accept that to be honest with you Gavin I mean ev- everybody's, everybody's human when everybody goes into politics with the best of intentions. Brian Cohn was not the best Taoiseach we ever had. He took over at a very difficult time. Personally, I think in terms of, of, of his premiership, he, he, he carried the, the, the problems that were created when he was Minister for Finance. All of that is totally irrelevant to somebody who's going through a health crisis and to his family. What it is reflective of is nothing to do with Mr Cohn or his politics or anything. It's reflective of what's out there today in terms of the, the, the possibilities and the potential in social media. You only have to look at another case that's in the paper today, that of uh, Simone Burns, the uh, human rights lawyer from Belfast. She was involved in an incident where she had too much to drink. She uh, abused people on a plane for four minutes. She, was, she got six months in prison and it seems that her whole life is so devastated that she took her own life soon after emerging from prison. Now, you can't read specifically into any issue about somebody who takes their life of course. as it being a straightforward thing, but there's no doubt It appears that what really impacted on her was the abuse that she got online. And, you know, it's indicative of what's out there. And it is really a a horrible feature to modern society. And and it's one that, uh, I don't know how we're going to start tackling it.
0: Uh, Grania, you're slightly at the cold face of this, obviously, because you work for an online outlet like the theJournal.ie, and there can be a lot of uh, comments below the line, so to speak. How prevalent do you think that this this sort of thing, not specific to, to Brian Cowan, but how prevalent are some of the more uh, personalised abuse? Well, how prevalent has that become?
3: Yeah, that's. Uh, I think Mick was t- touching on it there as well. There is a kind of a bipartisanship. There's no grey in. Um, there's no space for a kind of a grey area anymore. You're either for or against something, and that seems to be the end of it online. Um, that. That's how the kind of discourse goes usually. Um, I think when we see online commentary to a certain extent, you do need to say who's making these comments. Is Mm. it another one of those faceless anonymous accounts? because to a certain extent, there's nothing really you can do about that kind of commentary. If, it, if it's not a, a human being saying I'm mm. making this comment about someone. Um, Willie O'Dee actually said it in the Sunday Independent that they're very sick and twisted people on social media. And yeah, like, I don't know what we can do about that mm. other than to turn a blind eye to it as much as possible it's not like there are politicians saying this or representatives of society they seem to be quite faceless people who will email authors in or or journalists in giving their opinion but actually with a name attached but Mm actually not on Twitter, on social media openly.
0: Yeah. Um, Larry, it can be a bit of a, a tired debate, so we don't want to go into it too much and it's it's something that's been discussed at Noisyman in this forum and indeed on others. But do you believe that the, the, the tone of political debate has gone south because social media encourages people to be more toxic than they would have otherwise been? Or has there always been this toxic undercurrent that just simply hasn't been seen because there wasn't a forum for it to be expressed in.
1: I think that's probably true. I think that uh, that social media does empower people. It's very easy to say things behind when you're behind a computer or you're tapping away on your phone uh, and you're not in front of somebody. It's very easy to say uh, mean and nasty things. Uh, I'd also like like to endorse everything that Mick has said. And I just want to share one very brief personal reflection because uh, Brian Cowan is someone who I know well. Uh, he has been a speaker and something of an ambassador for us uh, In the Kennedy Summer School, which I'm a director of. Mm. Uh, And just before he fell ill, originally in April, uh, I spent two days with him in Boston at an event we did there. uh, And there were two very, very good days. And Brian, I really got the chance to show Brian around Boston and to introduce him to Boston. Uh, And Brian wasn't interested in the more uh, la-di-da elements of things. He wanted to know ordinary people and regular people. He met all my friends. He met guys at the the pub my brother drinks, and he took a great interest in them. They all really, really liked him. And and this is the thing I think some of the people who are commenting, he wasn't a perfect politician. Who among us is? Mm. Uh, But he's a good man. And in this regard, uh, I want to violate my mother's ultimate commandment, was which always was, uh, if you have some, don't have something nice to say, something don't say don't, it, don't please. say it. But in this case, the people who are saying these things about him on social media and elsewhere—they're um, vile. They're the lowest of the low, and shame on them.
0: So, what what do you say to people who find it too difficult to divorce the the personality of the man and the effect of the politics that his government had
1: to pursue for those three well, years? Political criticism is absolutely there's no no problem with that, no issue with that. If they want to hold him to account for the mistakes he made, and he's the first one to say he he wasn't perfect and did make mistakes, but you got to separate that from some of the comments about his illness.
0: And um, on the general topic of the effect of, of social media, there is a lot. It seems to have really hit some sort of a tipping point this weekend. There's a lot in today's Sunday papers about the effects of, of social media on children. Colin O'Rourke, uh, the former Meath footballer, uh, writing in his capacity as a school principal, uh, has a piece today on page 10 of the Sunday Independent. He says, we need to start saying no to children or the smartphone generation will be lost forever. He's writing about how students are the victims of a new wave of disorders and all of them are ultimately self-inflicted. He says that the problems lie uh, close to home. Mick, what do you think that there's, are we now reaching a bit of a tipping point where we're deciding that that Kids cannot have the ungated access to the internet that, that they've had for a
2: little while. I don't know where we're reaching a tipping point. I'll, I'll say one thing though, Gavin. Um, O'Rourke is a rock sense. Uh, really talking about football or education <laughs> matters, generally speaking. Now, well, some people might disagree with me on that, but but I uh, uh, won't get any quibbles here about his you know, meat football. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, no, his footballing is a different matter, we'll, we'll <laughs> but um. The piece he wrote here, I think, is absolutely spot on. He's speaking as a principal of a 900-pupil school and mm. his experiences, basically. He's not been dogmatic, he's not being prescriptive, he's pointing out an awful lot of home realities. And what I think is particularly interesting, two elements with, first of all, the notion in terms of he's saying if a phone is confiscated on the basis of it was being used when it wasn't supposed to be, the the, the the kids who want it back, they plead their need for the phone, not their want. And he's saying the, the big thing there at the moment is, you know, it seems to be a need, it seems to be a need for now. And he also points out, worse still is the number of parents who back them up. And I think that is very significant as well. And it's significant in a number of different ways. I'm a parent myself and this parenting generation, we try desperately be to, to be different from the one that went before us. Mm. And there are a lot of good reasons for that. But perhaps, like an awful lot of things, we've gone overboard in that regard. And in specifically here, O'Rourke is saying this capacity and ability to say no to kids is, is not as firm as it should be. Do you not think that there
0: is perhaps some perception among older generations that they just want their kids to not be excluded from any social circle and that so much of how kids socialise these days is done through electronic means that when they say they need a phone that they do genuinely feel that it's not a hysterical thing, that they feel
2: like they're, they've are they lost a limb when Absol- they don't have it. Absolutely, in general. But the point here being it's not that they need a phone uh, going into the future, is that they need it for the next three or four days during which time it has been deemed as a consequence for their behaviour. But in, in overall terms, that's the way life is and we all have to accept that. Social media is a huge part of the lives of that younger generation. So when they
0: say need, don't they, they perhaps maybe they do actually
2: need their mobile phone. Well, that's <laughs> that's open to question. What's need? I mean, it, it, well let me put it another way to you. Is there to be consequence for actions. If people are using the phones inside in school and they're not supposed to be, and if there's a rule there saying that if you do that, you lose the phone for a week, is that legitimate? Otherwise, what you're left with is there is no consequence for what they do. But he makes a particular point, and this is one that I have to say is going to play out eventually. What's it go- The kids that are growing up in that manner, what's it going to be like in 20 years time? Uh, what effect is this going to have on them? Mm. Purely in terms of their friends are now remote, in terms of their ability to socialise, all of those things. Now, all of that, as I mentioned to Larry, with the, with the caveat that every generation believes that the one coming after them is going to hell in the handbasket. But at yeah. the same time, there are specific issues in relation to how kids are growing up now in terms of, of, of uh, social media and all that. On, uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah,
3: I think I flip flop constantly over how bad um, smartphones and, and the digital age is for people. I think the age of the children in, in this case is quite important. If you're con- um, confiscating a phone, they do need it to some extent when you're a teenager. Um, there is something I, I think it is also quite damaging to um, link kind of communicating through, say, Snapchat or social media as being better or worse than in person because a lot of the time and especially in rural areas you don't get to see you know I come from a rural area where I couldn't walk to my friend's house mm. so in that, in those cases smartphones are actually yeah. important well, social I, I same, I, 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 what, <laughs> I,
0: I'm the same I got sent to a boarding school partly because the social life after hours because I was so far away from anyone else that part of the reason I was sent there was to have better socialising and I, and I can empathise to some degree with a teenager who goes to Colmore O'Rourke School in Avon and says actually no I need my yeah, phone because it is it you, you are completely 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 without a limb. If you if you're missing it for four days, between Monday and Friday.
3: Yeah, completely. And I tried to give up the thing about events happening. I tried to give up like. I deleted my Facebook for a year or two and had to get it back because so many events are actually organised through it. Mm. So I only use it for that purpose now. I I barely go on it. I think that's the actual thing. We've had this kind of um, tsunami of a digital kind of revolution and and socialising online and it actually hasn't settled down yet and we don't know how to use it in moderation yet because it's been so um, ubiquitous up until now. But I do think it's quite... um, we have to be careful about how we talk about this. The, you know, the smartphone generation, the digital era, that's a huge generalisation. Like that Colm work piece is very good. There's one line in it, though, where he says um, he kind of uh, t- talks about how dangerous it is to give children access to sex, gambling, violence, alcohol, drugs hmm. online. And then in the next line, it says where friends are communicating through text, Snapchat, Instagram, as if they're kind of both bad. They're not.
0: Yeah, no, that's a very fair point, and you have to do classify between uh, what is healthy interaction and what might be a little bit more um, insidious on, on a young impressionable mind. Um, opposite that, on, on page 11 of the Sunday Independent, uh, Larry, I'll come to you on this. There's a piece with the headline "Give Teens Free Gym Passes to Stop Drinking," and maybe the, the headline is a little bit less charitable. This is a, an idea from Fine Gael Senator Catherine Noon, who is suggesting that Ireland's serious problem with teenage binge drinking, which has a certain uh, import and impact on on mental health, and there's a certain symbiosis there as well. She that that could be tackled with subsidised membership of sports and music clubs that seems like a a reasonable idea doesn't it
1: I think it's a very reasonable and very creative idea and I think against some of what's said about the drinking culture and there's no no doubt that it persists and I know this is anecdote but certainly uh, I have a stepson who's 20 and I mean he's certainly obsessed with going to the gym much more than I would have been Mm. uh, at that age Uh, and I think that there is uh, an outlet there and I think a lot of um, perhaps young men but young women as well you know who want to who are focused on their physical well-being. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and I think anything that can stimulate and encourage that uh, I think is hugely important. Uh, I think the one thing about the, the O'Rourke piece, which is really challenging, uh, is for us, uh, those of us who are who are parents, towards the close, he says, we need to start saying no to kids uh, about being on the phone all the time. Uh, and for us as parents, that presents a challenge because anybody who works from home in particular will know that uh, one of the easy things to do is, if. and my son is only six, but he still loves the phone. And if I know he'll go off mm. on the phone For half an hour while I'm trying to do something, it's a very easy option. And the second thing, the other challenge, and we need to put a mirror up to ourselves, is we can't be on the things all day long either, because they learn by what they see.
2: Absolutely true. Particularly, I'm constantly getting chided for being on the phone myself. But and similar to that, in terms of, of this idea about free gym passes for uh, younger people mm. to get rid of binge drinking, again, that's subcontracting the problem out to young people. They're not growing up in a vacuum. They're growing up in a society where drink is so prominent, and they're just feeding into that. So saying it's it's a problem with young people that's getting rid of the issue you know what I mean It's, it's just not exactly
3: fun. going to the gym isn't a social event I think is the problem there they're not mm. you know you might go on a pairing or you might go to a class with someone else but you're not going to go and have a chat with someone
0: mm. at the treadmill Well uh, the, the reason why I shirked a little bit when I saw the headline first is that if you're giving teens a free pass to a gym then I would worry that a lot of teens would only use the gym from the totally superficial perspective of it matters how I look but if you're mm-hmm. promoting membership to a sports club then there will be more about physical fitness and of course there is a documented link between having physical fitness and then having a a more level-headed approach to mental health as well. Um, All of this is made more salient by a report that came out this week which showed that young Irish women are suffering the highest levels of moderate to severe symptoms of depression among their generation in the whole of the EU. This is a study by Eurofound which highlights how the pressures on teenagers and young women from cyberbullying, eating disorders such as bulimia, anorexia and uh, homelessness are taking a severe toll on their mental health which I suppose Grania, then adds a certain amount of a weight to uh, what karma O'Rourke is saying because although the teenagers might be saying that they, they need their mobile phone for, for social reasons and all of that too that when they are have their mobile phones taken away from them that whether they like it or not they are being insulated from a lot of some of that toxic culture that can lead to that sort of depression as well.
3: Yeah that's like, again like the the whole talk about it's a bit like social media is a bit like a food it's everything in, in moderation mm-hmm. and also the quality of what you're looking at online like where, where are you getting your information from where are you evaluating particularly in the case of young teenage girls are you comparing yourself to models in magazines um, to kind of uh, when you're looking at sizes online are you comparing yourself to others yeah. it's quite or the Love Island body style <laughs> or whatever but yeah. it, it can be something you can get sucked into very easily online and if you don't kind of spend enough time in the real world that that is da- I don't know that we don't really know the reason why uh, w- Irish women are experiencing kind of more um uh, yeah. difficult. more mental health yeah. issues why, I suppose. Is, why is it so
0: much more profound here than anywhere else you know the they EU, talk yeah. about
3: social media and they talk about drinking but actually it, it's a difficult one to get into I, I was wondering about this myself is it that we're actually not good at talking about these things and I think the term mental health I think people gloss over it a little bit now mm. they don't actually understand that something they are feeling or are worried about or stressed about is it could be a mental health issue could be depression um, because it is such a personal thing and everybody feels things kind of differently
0: mm. let us know what you think about that idea of subsidising some sort of a sports or musical membership for young people do get in touch 53106 is the text number that will cost you 30 cents or you can send us a tweet at Newstalk FM uh, stay with us after the break talking about the EU Mercosur proposed trade deal and whether that might cost Phil Hogan his job back after this We'll have, and I believe it will be Boris
2: Johnson, a Prime Minister, that is absolutely clear that he is going to lead this country out of the EU. So I believe that keeping our promises is crucial, and I believe Boris is the one that will lead us out at the end of October to make sure we keep that crucial promise.
0: Uh, Dominic Grab, who once upon a time said he was the man to lead the Conservatives, now says that Boris Johnson is the man to leave the Conservatives. I wonder why that might be and whether there's Cabinet jobs uh, going. Uh, he was on Sky News earlier on talking to uh, Sophie Ridge. He is now fully rowing in behind Boris Johnson. Front page of the Sunday Telegraph this morning, of course the Sunday title interviewing a columnist from its daily title. Funny that. Um, it has Boris Johnson saying that he's not bluffing about leaving uh, with no deal at Halloween. We will see. Uh, I saw one line ascribed to one of his surrogates yesterday saying that they can't wait to go on TV and on October the 30th saying that do or die was a metaphor and that they're not really leaving on Halloween but we will see um, at the 12 o'clock anyway we'll be talking Brexit and the New Look EU uh, with German MEP David McAllister don't let the surname fool you he is genuinely German uh, he is an ally of the German Chancellor Angela Merkel he's a member of the CDU party as well so we'll talk to him about that and about all things European as well in the meantime we are still going through the Sunday papers with Larry Donnelly Mick Clifford and growing in the air there's an awful lot in today's papers more than I can ever remember about a trade deal before um, about the proposed EU Mercosur trade deal Mercosur Mercosur who, who knows how it's pronounced it's an acronym we'll figure out our own way through it uh, but the general intent of it all or the tenor of the, the, the content mix today is that uh, this is going to screw beef farmers and ultimately that Ireland should then veto the deal and there might be some merit to that the beef farmers might feel like they are been, been thrown out the window here but it's a trade deal that deals with so many sectors that should we be surprised that the beef farmers are monopolising all the discussion
2: about it Well this, this is where you're back to the traditional power of the farmers and the beef sector in particular I mean, I think Phil Hogan is quoted in one of the papers um, giving out that other sectors are not pointing yeah, out he's how beneficial. To the Sunday
0: Business Post about Yeah, it. yeah
2: uh, how other sectors are not pointing out how beneficial it will be. But what strikes me about it is it, it, it's a precursor of the type of disruption. Look, it's inevitable, particularly if you look at climate change and, and other shifts. And uh, for example, even the Trump trade wars and that. It's inevitable. There's going to be major disruption in all these kind of things over the coming years and even decades. Major disruption that are going to affect large groups of people and it's a question of adjustment and how people move into a different phase. Farming and beef is obviously one of them. If this wasn't coming, for example, would it be coming in terms of climate change? As it is, it's coming in this regard and the issue would seem to be the political power of of the beef sector no I'm not for a second saying they won't be affected of course they'll be affected and of course something should be done to alleviate Mm. any problems in that regard but that does not mean that you stand up irrespective of the fact that you wouldn't be successful anyway most likely within the EU and attempt to block it on that basis Um, The the Sunday Business Post piece in which Phil Hogan is is quoted points out that Ireland currently has
0: around 2 billion euro of uh, exports in Irish goods and services and services are overlooked in this uh, to Brazil, Argentina Uruguay and Paraguay Um, this deal could double that to 4 billion euro a year uh, by 2030 but it will also allow an extra 99,000 tonnes of South American beef into the EU market. Farmers here are concerned that Argentinian beef could be comparable in terms of quality and they're concerned about the impact that might have on them. Uh, But Phil Hogan is quoted as saying that he's disappointed to see that with one or two exceptions that these sectors, which include the pharmaceutical medical devices and dairy sectors which clearly stand to benefit from the Mercosur deal he says, have barely responded to this agreement. Indeed the silence from those sectors is almost as loud as the noise being made by the critics of the agreement Um, Larry are you surprised that the the services sector which could stand to do so well or the pharmaceutical sector which is one of Ireland's biggest industries or software which is Ireland is one of the world's biggest exporters of software that they're not making more of a song and dance about the benefits of this deal?
1: Well perhaps for all sorts of reasons political and otherwise maybe they don't want to get on the wrong side of the agricultural lobby as well I don't know Um, I think that this this deal uh, you know again I think we should keep keep perspective on it, I think, is the big thing. It's an agreement in principle, as far as I understand mm. it. There's a couple of years of wrangling left before this happens. It to be ratified by parliaments and the like. So I think that there has to be some room for uh, trying to preserve some kind of safeguard or assuaging the concerns of farmers, uh, not just here, but in other European countries who are going to be affected by this. Uh, I take the point that globalization marches on. We can't stop it. Uh, but I do look somewhat askance at uh, what I might call free trade disciples, uh, uh, who I think look at the textbook and look at the numbers uh, and say tr- free trade is invariably a good thing. Uh, I wouldn't say that's always the case. There are always people who are, who are affected, uh, we see this particularly in the United States, perhaps by uh, so-called free trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the the space there and needs to be wiggle room uh, to provide assurances for farmers. And I think that's uh, poli- not just politically wise, but I think it's the right thing to do.
0: Uh, Grony are you surprised that in the, the modern 21st century society where so much of it is services and so little of it is agriculture? Or agrarian that that the beef concerns are still to the fore when we talk about all of this.
3: Yeah, it says it in the Sunday Times editorial. Actually, they talk about the concerns about that ninety nine thousand ton um, beef coming into the market, which I think is only one percent of the total beef that that the EU uh, consume anyway. Mm. So it's not a massive amount in perspective. But then it says demand for burgers and steaks is also likely to decline over the next decade. So you're you're talking about you know possibly vetoing a deal that will. Or trying to, at least, yeah. yeah. like trying to. Mm. Uh, that will benefit um, uh, for the sake of an industry that is going to be in decline anyway. That doesn't really make sense on the surface. Um, it's a, such a fascinating deal, though, because it brings in the climate change issue as well, which is something that we're constantly talking about. Uh, EU cars are going to be uh, benefit massively from this because they will be able to export them to these mm. four countries with huge populations. Um, and then you have cows and... Uh, agricultural products coming into the EU and the Amazon rainforest Mm. is being cut down um, by uh, Bolsonaro to do this. So it's kind of like, it's kind it seems, it's bad timing that with the appointment of uh, Ursula von der Leyen, it's bad timing for, uh, for people defending the EU because it actually kind of, uh, represents a lot of the main concerns that people have about the EU that you can't that kind of talks out of both sides of its mouth Yeah
0: and, and that Ireland is unable to, to stop by itself to, to stop yeah. the march of this and from that, going through whether yeah, it's in its best small interest countries
3: or not. can't fight back
0: basically uh, Michael do you think that there's a little bit of dissonance within the Irish government about how to handle this because we had Michael Creed uh, who was bounced into d- soon doing some dull Q&A on this earlier in the week and he was talking about how Ireland could possibly use some of the climate concerns to frustrate this that they could argue that you can't go felling Amazonian rainforest and that he could use that as a lever to stop beef farmers from getting screwed. But on the other side, then we had Leo Varadkar leaving a European summit earlier this week and he was talking about how this would force uh, South American farmers to uh, adopt better climate standards so that it was better for all concerned. And it seems
2: the government could legitimately be accused of talking out of both sides of the oh, mouth. Oh no question, the world. And I mean, you know, traditionally the Minister for Agriculture has been uh, the champion of the farmers to the extent that that's how it would be perceived as looking after his own ballywick. Uh But again, it's back to it. You see, it's the pluses and minuses. And here, I mean, I agree with Larry to the extent that, that it doesn't mean it's all good or it all has to, or it's all good free trade, end of story. But it's the pluses and minuses. And if the figures show that in terms of jobs in terms of income and investment that this deal is, is better rather than worse for the country then that, that case should be made in a neutral manner not on the basis of who has traditionally had the greatest political power. That's notwithstanding all the various issues that farmers are facing at the moment and they are facing a lot of issues as well. But I mean it has to be on, on a, more, um, a more neutral ground that you decide these kind of issues. Um, Larry do you think this is going to
0: cost Phil Hogan his
2: job
1: It's very hard to know, Uh, very hard to know. I suspect probably not, ultimately, but uh, at the end of the day, I think this dissonance is going to continue, because if there's one thing that successful politicians should be good at, uh, it's at counting votes. Uh, And those in rural constituencies, uh, where there are a very heavy farm presence, uh, they're going to be, I suppose, taking soundings from their constituents and where they are on this, uh, and they're going to act and lobby accordingly. So I would expect there will be dissonance continuing.
0: Um, Michael, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago there the idea of... Of, uh, the, the classes in which the political power lies and whether that's the, the agricultural lobby or anyone else uh, on that general topic there's a piece on page 18 of today's Sunday Independent by Ailish O'Hanlon and the headline reads is this the end of the middle class which might seem like a slightly alarmist or OTT take on it but the subtitle beneath that adds a little bit more uh, nuance to it she says being unable to buy your own home is a personal disappointment but it's also a political time bomb and she writes about how all stable societies are built on deferred gratification you can't have everything you want at once you have to work hard and wait but what happens when despite working hard and waiting patiently gratification gets pushed so far down the line that it reaches a point where it never happens at all she writes that Ireland may be about to find out because of how so many young people have been priced out of the property market um, Granny, it must be uh, something that you're very acutely aware of the, the generation that you're in that so few people can afford to own their own homes that you're not really sure what you intend to do when you I know you, you might not be thinking about retirement age yet but at some point you're going to have to need a roof over your head and if you've had to rent for your whole life and you've never been able to buy you're not going to be able to buy at retirement age so what are you going to do then?
3: Well, I I mean it's uh, definitely something you're constantly aware of I'm not um, expecting to be able to buy a home at any stage I think that when we we're having conversations with my peers kind of we talk about stabling the rent market and yeah. that being a more viable kind of option into the future, because at the moment there and Ayla Johansson's piece mentions this that the the salaries that people are paid um, is completely out of dis, er, out of proportion to the price of a house. Sure, and that just seems like an impossible kind of mountain to climb. Um, at the moment, uh, you know, but then the 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 uncertainties around the rent market. I mean. Uh, for example we had a rent review with our landlord recently and you're doing everything possible to try and get him in a good mood so yeah. that he'd like w- are we just raise it by the 4% a little bit under that mm. you know cleaning the house and trying to uh, all yeah. those kind Proper of things should m- yeah, yeah all those things shouldn't matter and they do kind of you, you do all you can to kind of make uh, keep your rent at an affordable level to stay in the house that you found so that you're not worrying about moving house in the middle of a busy time at work or anything like that and all those things can be fixed it seems like a, a more Secure rental market would help um, massively, even when we're on the road to fixing mm. all the other problems but with the housing e- even market. Even if
0: it were to stabilise, do you and your peers ever have discussions about what you're going to do when your working life is over and exactly how you're going to house yourselves then?
3: Well, no, it's actually quite difficult if you're single, and um, because if you're ha- if you're, if you're going out with someone, you can have a uh, discussion about uh, saving together for a mortgage. It's mm. actually much more difficult um, if you're single because you obviously don't have that conversation with other you know your friends you wouldn't really buy a house with your friends some people sure. buy a house with their siblings or maybe might build on uh, property their parents own kind of thing but you wouldn't really have that kind of uh conversation unless you're in a relationship which is a whole different kind of angle to the to the discussion um mm-hmm. how do we house uh, single people there's a lot of talk about we have a glut of uh two to three bed houses and not enough apartments for uh young professionals yeah. and that and that's that and needs to be addressed. And if
0: co-living is flavour of the month as well, I don't
2: think you can be expected to, to share with a couple <laughs> yeah, of dozen other people when you're a pensioner the either. The issue about retirement is a very valid one, Gavin. And the one thing I would say on that though is there is talk that we should move to towards a more European model whereby there is long term renting, where people rent in a specific place all of their lives. Mm, and including they, in their retirement. Exactly. And they manage to deal with it and we, we can see what that model is. The big problem there, though, is the veneration for private property and the interpretation within the Constitution that it's sacrosanct, which it's actually not. There's a, a public good clause there. Yeah. But because we still have that here, the rights of renters are completely imbalanced if we are to go forward with a situation whereby of uh, a younger generation do not have a realistic prospect of ever owning their own home that needs complete transformation in terms of the imbalance that's there between renters and and, uh, landlords we've had some discussion on this show before about the idea of having some sort of a
0: property pension that you'd have to set aside certain amounts so that the government may have to take some money from you so that when you get to retirement age that they are still able to provide for a roof over your home because even people in nursing homes if it's on the fair deal scheme you need to have some land to secure that against Um, Eilish O'Hanon makes the the argument in her piece Larry that if young people are offered the chance to buy homes then they will have an automatic and a lifelong investment in society in the system and most likely their children will too if they're locked out of that aspiration then the risk is that they'll feel less allegiance to society and its values so put crudely owning a home makes a person more conservative and that despite modern prejudice is a good thing do you agree
1: I don't know if I would go that far, but what I would say is I, I think I think some some of this I actually c- kind of regard quite tragically. Uh, I think it's you know nine nine out of ten people as as she writes uh, would still rather own a house uh, than to pay rent. Uh, and I think maybe it's sentimentalism or whatever. But uh, to me, where you live is not just you know four walls and roof et cetera. It, it's a place that's really special. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that owning that place uh, means more than renting it. Maybe that's my own biased perspective, but I think that's true. This is an incredibly complicated issue on a number of different levels, the housing crisis that we now face. But just a a couple of things to throw in there, Uh, one is that the issue of supply is obviously the key factor. Absolutely. Unless we expand supply, this problem is going to go on ad infinitum. If we do increase supply, uh, I think that has to be in the context of more of a spatial strategy. Uh, Again, the country is way too Dublin-centric, I still cannot get my head around it. And the other thing is... There is a perception now that prices are very high, they're going to stay that high, though that's the way it's going to be. Um, I know it seems that way right right now, especially in the context of the supply issue, but if the rest of the world is any indicator, market turbulence will be there. So prices are very high right now, that doesn't mean they'll always be high. So I wouldn't I wouldn't write the
0: stay that high because people would have concern that when more supply comes into the market that the current high prices just stay that high. And at least they don't get any higher, but they don't get any more affordable.
1: Again, you know, if you look at market turbulence in terms of the housing market. Housing markets, at least uh, in in the West, tend to go something like this. They tend to go up and they go mm-hmm. down and they go up and they go down. So the what might seem totally out of reach, especially if we have work in the supply, if we have work in a spatial strategy, that dream of home ownership mightn't be totally gone.
3: I- I think that stat of 9 out of 10 people preferring to own their home is interesting but I wonder if you change the terms and conditions under which people rented Mm -hmm. how that would shift. Uh, The other thing about uh, people preferring to own a home as well, like anecdotally I would say that is shifting uh, among people my age although my parents' generation would ask you know, my parents would ask me Particularly my grandparents um, generation would ask me when are you going to buy a house?" Mm. and I'm going, well, do you, have you seen you know the <laughs> yeah. news recently yeah. um, I although that's happening uh, that my my peers again, I don't hear anyone talking about but it's, a house it's, or it's, I, it's, I house. mean a
2: huge part of it's down to stability the the, the difference between owning and renting it, it is huge if you're talking about long term and people going to middle age and later in life. the difference is huge but if, the, if you have enough stability in renting, mm that difference is not as it would otherwise be. Now, that stability is required whereby renters are confident that they're in a place and they can stay there for as long as they... Obviously, the ideal thing is to have far more home ownership, Mm. but as supply is a huge issue there and we're so far behind it's going to take a while to catch up I think. Uh,
0: Trevor Boland has been in touch via Twitter. He says that the Mercosur deal is not just about the amount of beef to be imported but rather about the requirements and standards placed on Irish and European farmers to deliver traceability to their quality beef. Those standards are not in the South American countries hence the ability to produce beef that's cheaper than what we have at home. Those promoting this are not considering environmental standards either. Irish farmers are far more efficient than their counterparts in Mercosur countries. Thank you for that comment Trevor. Do get in touch at news talk fm or at gav riley and um, were you offended by what leo varadkar had to say around sinful priests earlier this week we'll be talking about that next It kind of reminds me of one of those parish priests who preaches from the altar telling us uh, to avoid sin while uh, secretly going behind the altar and engaging in um, any, any amount of sin himself that's what Leo Varadkar had to say in the doll on Wednesday afternoon in reply to a comment by Micheál Martin which was all prompted by the uh, unlikely hotspot of the Dunkettle interchange. Uh, Micheál Martin had asked where is the Dunkettle interchange? Why hasn't it been upgraded? Leo Varadkar replied said well I'm glad to know that you are committed to the upgrade of some roads because you've been calling for some of them to be relaxed for climate reasons. Micheál Martin labelled that as petty and idiotic which led to that reply about 90 minutes later um, from Leo Varadkar remark for which he had subsequently apologised. There is of course a... Uh, a lot written in today's papers about it. Um, Larry, I'll come to you first of all. Do you think that it was... Are, are people right to be offended by what Leo Radka had said given that there is now an established pattern of priests being just as hypocritical as Radka was making out?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if it's right or wrong but I certainly can understand why people were offended by it and I think uh, one of the thing My reaction to it originally was... Uh, People can be offended for all so all sorts of people can be offended for all sorts of reasons. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, indeed, you know, we see abuse victims who who are very offended by the by the comment. Uh, Speaking personally, myself as a Catholic, I'm offended by the comment. I think uh, a lot of ordinary, decent priests would have been profoundly uh, alienated by by the things he said. And and certainly, uh, probably Fianna Fáil, and we know mm. all know the, the, the relationship between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and all that's going on at the moment. Uh, a lot of them and a lot of Michal Martin's supporters certainly would have been, been offended. When
0: you say you're offended by it uh, as a practicing Catholic, what is it about it that you find so objectionable?
1: I just, I just find that, you know, if, this is a, maybe a small bit of what a battery but I just think if you inserted another clergy into that comment, that I think there would have been profound shrieks and howls of outrage, and that's not to, de- to dis- deny or dismiss uh, all the horrible, horrible things perpetrated by the church and by individual priests uh, over the years, but I think it, it is reflective of a little bit of a, 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 a different standard, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I found it uh, objectionable. And again, I'm somebody who's had really good relationships with parish priests, both back in Boston mm. uh, and here, uh, and for when I think of all of them... Uh, it really, it, it hurts. And I think that's why the Taoiseach can fan us to him. We've all said things we regret. Uh, I think the Taoiseach... Uh I know Ayla O'Hanlon takes a different view Mm. but I think the Taoiseach was dead right uh, to apologise and uh, look I'm happy to forgive him let's move on we've all said things we didn't mean
0: Well I suppose forgiveness is a core part of Catholicism as well so I guess you're only keeping to your faith there Um, David Quinn has written a piece on page 15 of the Sunday Times today he says that it's a sin to tar the good names of all priests and he says the Taoiseach Scaff reveals how the image of church leaders as hypocrites has been drilled into the Irish psyche now without question and yet Ayla O'Hanlon is saying on the back page of the Sunday Independent that Conservatives have turned into oversensitive snowflakes. When mocked or insulted by critics, I hate the the use of the word "snowflake." It's such a overused uh, term now. Um, Grawney, which side of the fence do you think you come down on, or or do you think that there is uh, cause for Leo Varadkar to be uh, apologetic about saying something that a lot of people perceive to be true?
3: I think he is right to apologise. I don't know if he's apologising to the right group though. Uh, whatever about disagreeing with a politician. Or making that remark, they weren't talking about the history of the Catholic Church. They weren't talking talking about about the bronchial interchange. (laughs) And and to bring one of the darkest moments in Irish history to take a jab at the leader of the opposition seems re- like making light it just it seems really disrespectful on a really basic level um, and completely unnecessary it was out of proportion with the situation and uh, I i just don't know what he was thinking it's kind of exasperating I'm actually kind of tired of these gaffs hmm. um, and Varadkar apologising for them and then making no effort to kind of rein in his rhetoric
0: Yeah uh, there, there's uh, a couple of texts are coming in about them I might get to them in just a moment um, Make on the the topic that the groin he was just touching on there there was the comments in the door a few weeks ago where Leo Varadkar uh, dismissed an inquiry by Gino Kenny with the words same reply and that was seen as a bit sure. arrogant and now we have a, a similar comment here which is being seen as um, whether it was off the cuff or how premeditated it might have been but again it has come across as arrogance uh, do you believe that it's becoming a little bit of a an electoral liability perhaps for Finnegan well I think
2: Leo Varadkar has shown himself to be a bit gaff prone I mean I I, I think it was offensive to Catholics and particularly to priests irrespective of how hypocritical hierarchy down through the years were in dealing with child sexual abuse to be labelling priests like that I think it was out of order I would put one caveat though in terms in, in defence of the Taoiseach in this regard and because there's a report elsewhere in the paper today that in privately he has referenced Michal Martin as being a priest yeah, this is the
0: front page story of today's Mail on yeah. Sunday that he refers to him apparently uh, in some circles as Father no,
2: well, I, I have a little insight into that in that I think the first time Mihal Martin was compared to being priestly was back at the two thousand and eleven election. And the reason I know because it was John Waters, the journalist, wrote an excellent piece, I have to say, where he described Mihal Martin's countenance on the election trail as being priest like. And funnily enough, I was on the same trip and when I read it I said Damn it! I wish I'd thought of that because <laughs> it was actually very accurate and it wasn't offensive in any way. It was in merely what way? In what a pastoral type way, his way of interacting with people was... It was, it was in a positive way, he was actually saying. His, it, the way he interacted with people was uh, priest-like in that regard. And you might recall that following that on Vincent Brown's show, Mario Rosenstock mm. did a sketch where Mihal Martin was in his surplice in soutane in, in, in a priest-like fashion. So you can see why it would be in Leo Veradker's head to make that comparison... But I think it was completely out of order. And, and, and to I, I think, as you said in the first instance, he should apologise to Michal Martin. But also, it was out of order that, 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 that you'd be making that sort of comparison when the vast, vast majority of priests uh, were not engaged in any of that sort of stuff. Well, the bishop
0: who's responsible for Michal Martin's own turf, he's the head of the Diocese of Cork and Ross, Bishop Fintan Gavin, he was speaking to Susan Kyo on News Talk Breakfast earlier. Here's a little bit of what he had to say about it all. He didn't just offend the priests, the people that may be referred to subtly, those kind of victims of abuse, people who've really suffered, when they hear the thing being kind of trivialized like that, in some ways it shows doesn't show the respect that we should have for them either. So I think at all kinds of levels, I think if he could have that conversation again, he would have it differently. I'm sure he regrets it. Uh, A listener says, Leo sometimes says things he shouldn't, he's not as slick as some other politicians, but the clergy feigning victim status over sinning priests is really offensive. Another listener says, Leo should not have apologised for his remark if the cap fits, wear it. The Catholic Church is unbelievably hypocritical. It has damaged many people in this country and worldwide. Uh, Larry, your response to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I look hands up. I, I think that, that that is true. The church can't deny. I can't deny that. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think the church has done an awful lot of good for a, a tremendous amount of people, and there are so many people out there uh, who derive such great strength uh, for their from their faith, and for whom it provides uh, so much inspiration, and so much good ultimately for society. So uh, I think it's it's a mix. But again, uh, I just come back to the point. I wouldn't over egg it if I was the church, and from a PR point of view, uh, I'd just say apology accepted, and let's move on.
0: Um, I know a lot of people don't always agree with what David Quinn has to say about these things, but he does make one very canny point in his piece today in the Sunday Times. He says, In a funny sort of way, Vrantker may have done priests a favour with his remark on Wednesday night. He made a large number of people sit up and ask themselves whether it was fair to speak of clerics in this way. Many decided it was not, having been reminded of the priests that they know and that most of them are good men who do good work. And I think that is a a trope that is uh, very difficult for a lot of us to argue with. I'm afraid, uh, all of you, we're going to have to leave it there. My thank you to, to all of you for coming in this morning. Larry Donnelly, law lecturer in NUI. Ballway, Mick Clifford, special correspondent with the Irish Examiner, and Grainne A. reporter with the Journal.ie. Thank you all for joining me.